Take your Bibles, feel, and open them back up to Hebrews chapter 6. As always, we want to probably put a bookmark there, something to make it easier to flip back and forth. I always like to go to a couple different spots, but last week we went over what I consider to be one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. And I said that last week, and I said that we reconciled the tension in that passage with what we believe through the promises of God. And now this is the nice thing about preaching in a series, preaching through a whole book. The, the topics can kind of dovetail together. So I want to start this week with a question. Why can we trust God's promises? And I mean that seriously. It's a, it's a question that if you've never thought about, you probably should. Most people have at some point. And a lot of times we can be afraid of asking questions like that, of very serious questions, questions that, you know, seem almost at times to, to cut against what we believe, but if we really believe that Christ is who He is, that He is God Himself, that He is truth, that we are led by the Spirit of truth, that the Bible conveys truth about the world and the way it was made, how we're supposed to live in it, then we should never fear any question. Now, that's not to tell you that I have every single answer to every question in the entire world. There's some things that pertain only to God, this book doesn't tell you a lot about calculus. You know, that's okay. But it does mean that we can stand on the promises of God and we can trust that if God really is who He says He is, that we can come to an answer. And so we always want to approach God with faith that He is who He says He is, that He is God Himself, that He is truth and life and love and all of these different attributes that we attribute to Him, that His Word is attributed to Him. But we come with that faith seeking understanding. Because we can't understand God without having faith in Him. Hebrews tells us that he who comes to the Lord must have faith that He is who He says He is, and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And so when we think about understanding God's promises, why we can trust them, if we're going to seek to understand why it is that we can trust God's promises, why we can say that that really is how we reconcile all the tension in the Bible, then we have to start with how God has revealed himself. Because he is completely other. Right? He is, there's a fast chasm between him and us that separates who we are and who he is. We are made in his image, but he is the, the fullness of it. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Right? He sits in the heavens and laughs to scorn his enemies. And so God is so great above us, so transcendent, then we have to start with what he has revealed. And I think the best way to do that is to look at the covenants that he has entered into. I think that tells us a lot about who he is, what he's done, what his purpose is. And I think the author of Hebrews has, has given us a framework for this. Because if you remember, he's spent a lot of time talking about the Israelites, how they didn't enter God's rest, how that covenant is coming to an end. And then now he brings up Abraham. And through Abraham, he talks about how he, God has sworn by himself to bring those promises about. So I want to follow that structure. And so if you'll turn with me to Exodus 24... Let's talk about the Mosaic Covenant a little bit. Now, to me, 
it's unfortunate that we think of this as the primary covenant in the Bible. I would contend that most people do when you say covenant, you think Mosaic covenant, you think the law, the Old Testament, all of those old things. So Exodus 24, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. We'll keep going. It says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the leaders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now after that, you know, we get into the 611 direct commands. And many people throughout church history have struggled to figure out how we're supposed to handle that as Christians. If you've never looked at the Old Testament and said, how does this apply to my life, then you probably haven't thought about it very long because we've all gone through that struggle before. Everyone has heard someone accusatorily quote some random piece of information out of the Mosaic Covenant and use it to try to show that God doesn't exist. Right? We've all had these weird interactions. So we need to take some time and think about how are we supposed to understand the Mosaic Covenant? A lot of people throughout church history have split it up into three parts. They call it the moral law, the religious, and the ceremonial And they say that part of it has passed away, but the moral law is the same. I just think that's wrong. Here's why I think that's wrong, because James tells us that if you endeavor to keep the whole law, but you stumble at any point, then you've broken all of it. Under this covenant, every action you take is a moral action. Whether it's wearing two types of clothing, eating shrimp, or killing somebody, it's a moral action. But now this is not what we're under, right? We all understand that. We understand that through the blood of Christ, we're not under the law. So what are we supposed to say about it? What was added for the transgressions of Israel as a tutor to keep them until Christ? That's what Paul tells us in Galatians. And since we are no longer under it, it's not something that we need to follow. But don't misunderstand what its point is. It is righteous. Paul can say that in Romans. But it doesn't make you righteous. For righteousness did not come through the law or else we wouldn't have to have Christ. So let's let's ask this question again. Why are there so many laws? Why are they so intrusive into people's lives, governing all the way down to what they eat, what they wear, how they interact with each other, what they're supposed to do on certain days of the week? They govern every single aspect of people's lives. That's because God did not come for anything less than every aspect of your life. 
That's what he reveals to us through this covenant, through all of these different laws and interactions and commandments. The best example is if you think about Leviticus chapter 18, just make a note, go back and read, it's five or six different, very different commandments. And the question is why? Because God came for our entire life. Nothing less than that is going to be enough. So when we think about the way in which we're, God has revealed himself to us, we need to think about the fact that he enters into this. But why can we say that the law has ended? Right? We can always just say that, well, the law has ended because Jesus has come. Right? That's the easy Sunday school answer. But let's, let's think a little bit deeper. Who is it that enters into this covenant? Who is it that God makes a covenant with in Exodus 24? If you're looking at verse 8, it's the people. It's Israel. Who are the people of Israel? They're human beings, just like me and you. They're sinful. They're changing. They're not God. And what does that mean? It means that eventually they're going to mess up and break the covenant. They might keep it for a while. They might do good for a while. And that's what we see if you read through Chronicles is that you know, the time of David and Solomon was a golden time, but the story of the prophets, what they continue to tell people is that you have broken the covenant with God and now it's coming to an end. So when we think about why we can say that we're no longer under law, it's because it's been fulfilled through Christ, and because it was with Israel and not with everyone. But Hebrews wants to make a different point. If you look back at our, at our, our, at our uh, text for the day, Hebrews chapter 6, starting in 16, it says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God decided to show more convincingly to the heirs the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Here he's pointing us to the big difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. So let's look back at Abraham and let's, in Genesis chapter 15. This is going to be the last big flip, so you can move your bookmarks if you have them. But Genesis chapter 15, thinking about the Abrahamic covenant, just a couple verses, starting in verse 8, he says, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So this is where, this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about, what he's referencing back to. And God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid them half against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And then skip down to verse 17, and just, when he had gone, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. Now, we haven't entered into a lot of covenants. You know, if you've been married, you have, but that's about it. What they're saying here. The way a covenant works, when they cut those animals in half and they go between them, 
is they're saying, whoever breaks this covenant, let me be like these animals. So if there is disobedience in this covenant, if there's any difference, anyone doesn't uphold their end of the bargain, death is the result. But now what's important about that? Who goes between the animals? It's not God and Abram. This is what separates this from the Mosaic Covenant. God alone goes between them. God alone is going to keep this. So now, God, who cannot lie by his fairy character, who is, is truth itself, is the foundation for all truth, is the foundation for all good, comes back and says that I will die if, the, if this covenant is broken. That is the oath that he's willing to swear. That is how much further he's willing to go than anyone and anything else. And so when we think about this, this is not just a covenant between God and Abraham. Right? This is why it can be called a promise. Because this is a covenant in the Godhead. This is God himself, all the persons of the Trinity, coming together and saying, we are going to cause the divine will to happen on earth. God has sworn it to come about. And so when we think about the promises of God, we can think about how far he is willing to go. And what we learn when we think about this covenant, now obviously there's a lot more you can learn if you want to dig through it, but for today, what we're going to focus on is that God reveals that he is going to cause his promises to happen. As sure as the Lord lives, if he lives, what he says will come to pass. What he has promised will happen. And all of the things that he talks about are true. And that's what's so different about this, and that's why you see the same thing in 1 Samuel 17 when he makes those promises to David. That's why at the beginning of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, the writer of Matthew, Matthew himself writes, this is the genealogy of Christ, Jesus, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham and of David. Because these are two people that God has entered into not just a covenant with, but that he's made promises with by himself, that he is going to bring them about. And he's signaling to us that through Jesus Christ, all of the different promises he has made, the things that he's sworn by himself, he's going to bring to pass through this man, Jesus. And so how does he do that? He makes a new covenant. And I said earlier that I think it was unfortunate that we often think of the Mosaic Covenant as the main covenant of the Bible. That's because I think we need to think of the New Covenant as the main covenant of the Bible. It's the one that we're in as believers. It's the relationship that we have with God himself. And when we think about it, we have to think about the cross. The cross is the defining moment in human history. And now as Protestants, we are so focused on the cross, but at times, we can be so focused on it that we forget what happened before and after it. And we can't do that. 
So let's think about what happens before the cross. God the Son becomes incarnate. God takes on a human nature, becomes flesh and blood, partaker in human weakness. The infinite God becomes a finite human being. And there's some tension in that. And we've spent 2,000 years trying to understand it, and we've worked through it some, but at the end, there is some defined mystery in that. But what it means is that since he is the exact image of God, he has shown us what it means to be made in God's image. If Jesus Christ isn't God, he doesn't redeem humanity. If he isn't a human being, he doesn't redeem humanity. He has to be both. Because what Jesus doesn't assume, what he doesn't take on, if he doesn't become a human being, he doesn't redeem it. So if we ever separate the cross from the incarnation, if Jesus just becomes a great moral teacher who happened to die for us, or if he becomes a God who never really went to the cross, just kind of went back to, back to God at the, the moment of suffering, never suffered for us, then you aren't saved. Nothing we do matters. We have to hold on to that. When we think about what happens after the cross, it's just as important. Because after the cross, he's raised from the dead. He's proven to be blameless. He ascends to the Father where he sits at his right hand. He's ruling over anything and everything that happens in our lives. And as difficult as that can be sometimes, it should be Oh, so comforting. And he sent us the Holy Spirit. That's what he tells us in John, that if he doesn't ascend, that the Helper won't come, that the Holy Spirit won't come. But through the Holy Spirit, we know that we can find all truth in God. That we're sanctified, we're made to look more like Christ. That we work through our lives and other people's lives, and it all comes together by his power. So if we lose either of these two points... We lose the cross. But because we keep these points, if we keep these points, then what happens at the cross is infinitely more powerful than we often give it credit for, than we could ever give it credit for. It's a reason that we'll be praising Jesus forever for it, that he is worthy of all praise and honor. Because at the cross, the blood of the Lamb is poured out and his body is broken. Yes, Jesus makes atonement for our sins. He does more than that there. He wins a victory over death. He opens a new covenant, a new type of relationship to God himself. This is why you are a new creation if you are in Christ Jesus. Because this is an entirely new way of interacting with the world, as different as Jew is from Gentile. At the cross, God gives us the ability to draw close to him. And if we're going to really follow God, if we're going to be Christians, we have to keep all three of those parts together. And by doing this, we're able to understand what is meant by God swearing by himself. Make no mistake, this covenant is just like the one with Abraham and that God swore by himself to bring about what he will. 
For God alone is Savior, and He will share His glory with no other. If God being Savior, salvation being in His hands worries you, if you would rather it be in your hands, then you don't understand who you are and you don't understand who God is. He will bring it to pass. He will hold you. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is love. He is life. He is all of the amazing things that we have given Him. All these titles are His. That's why when we think about in the new heavens and the new earth, those who have been glorified will throw crowns at His feet. Because it is God who brings these things to pass. And that doesn't absolve you from responsibility. It doesn't make it a lifeless act. You still have to make the choice to follow God. You're still expected to do what you are supposed to do, to do right, if you are to be accepted. And the way that we know that we are doing this, the way that we know God is working in us, is through the Holy Spirit. Because this time, we aren't left alone. We aren't just human beings striving after perfection. Because finite human beings working on their own will never get there. Add all the numbers that you want. You'll never get to infinity. And that's the story of the Bible up until Jesus Christ said. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But the people of Israel, the Jews, work and work and strive and toil, and yet they are never righteous before God. What does Isaiah say when he sees the Lord? Woe unto me, for I am a person of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. And then he is purified by the Lord. So when we think about the promises of God, we can trust them because he is who he is, and he has revealed to us who he is, and he has revealed that he is a God who will go to the cross that the God of life will die to bring you to, to himself, to bring his promises to pass. That he will take the suffering that is rightfully yours, that he will care for you after. It's not a one-time event. That he is perfectly good and trustworthy. He's immutable. There's no shadow of turning. He said he will do it, so he will. So why can we trust God's promises? Because he's revealed to us that we can. And that means we have to act in a certain way. We have to confess our sins, for he is sure to forgive us. We have to keep the commandments that Jesus has given us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, to love your neighbor as yourself. For this is how we know that we have passed from death onto life, as if we love as he loved, if we walk as he walked. We have to be baptized into repentance, into the into the new covenant. This is why we are baptized, to mark our entrance into it. It's why we take the Lord's Supper, to remember that we have entered into this new covenant in Christ's blood. And we have to persevere. So this is the endurance of the saints that we continue on in His name. And if you're not doing that, if it's time to change. Because God has promised that if you do, He will be there helping you along the way. And if you don't do that, if God has given you all of these promises, if God has set out, gone to the cross for you, died for your sins, and you still reject Him, what more could He possibly do? 
So I entrust each and every one of you, I, I give you the charge to live the life God has called you to, to turn and invest your, from your sins, and to trust on him, because he will bring it to pass. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our time together. Lord, we thank you for revealing to us who you are. We thank you for being who you are. God, we ask that you continue to help us to move towards you, to turn our lives towards you, to live lives that are righteous and pleasing in your sight. Father, we pray that everything said here will be beneficial, will be fruitful, will be sown in people's hearts that it may reap righteousness, and that everything done here today will be for your glory. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.